0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Millar, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Barbara Risman, author of Where the Millennials Will Take Us, A New Generation Wrestles with the Gender Structure, published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. Dr. Risman is the distinguished professor of sociology at the University of Illinois-Chicago, She's editor-in-chief of journal, the journal Gender and Society and the former president of Sociologists for Women in Society. Her research interests include gender inequality and families, feminist activism, and public sociology. Dr. Risman, welcome to the show. I'm very pleased to be here. Yeah, it's great to talk to you today, and I really enjoyed your book. So can we begin the interview just um, by you saying a few words about yourself?
1: Sure. Uh- My book is really two books in one. One part of the book is to help us understand the generation that we call millennials, the people who came of age in the new uh, century. It's not so new anymore, but they are the first generation of the 21st century. They are now in their late 20s and early 30s and are that generation with a lot of young children. When I interviewed them, they were in college and soon out of college or in that age group. Um, The second part of the book or the book, the second book within a book is really about how to understand and think about what we mean by gender in the 21st century. And I think that that's my favorite part of the book, actually, because I think everyone hears the word gender these days and thinks what's your identity? And i that's important. We all have gender identities and there are a variety, variety of them, but gender is not simply an identity. What I try to explain in this book uh, is that gender is a structure. It's a structure of inequality that we all live in. It affects our identities, of course, but it also shapes what we expect from one another, the interaction, how I expect someone to behave depends on whether or not I see that person as a woman or a man, or perhaps nowadays non-binary, how I'm expected to act depends on how people see me. And so the social expectations are different by gender categories. And we've built the way gender operates into our economy and our cultural beliefs about workplaces. How is it that we expect workers to to be at work from nine to five and sometime in our commute on either side 50 or 49 weeks a year. That just presumes that no worker has any responsibility for another human being. What that really means is the workplace was built for men with wives. And that's the way in which gender has been built into the economy. And so the other part of this book is helping people see gender as a social structure. Absolutely. So before we
0: really get into um, the the content of the book, I'm interested in how did you come to write Where the Millennials Will Take Us? So what inspired you to write this book?
1: Oh, that's a it's a great story, actually, because the book that I uh, proposed to Oxford University Press wasn't this book that uh, it was a book about theory. It was really, I proposed a book about gender structure theory, a theoretical book, which was going to have three different chapters showing how to use that theory and research. I was going to do one chapter on my research that was about hooking ups and sexuality on college campuses. I was going to have one chapter on the attempt to integrate women into scientific careers, which is another line of research I had um, going at that moment. And then I was going to have one chapter on millennials and the, how the new generation coming of age dealt with gender. And, for, and I agreed to do that chapter because my university wanted a faculty member to teach our graduate practicum in methodology. And it it rotates qualitative and quantitative, and it was a qualitative year. And I thought, okay, I will teach that class. And as a class, we'll collect a lot of data. And I will take the 20 or so interviews of um, people who are really wrestling with gender and use it for that chapter. And that's what I did. We have a, did all those interviews um, you, as, a, as a class. And then I started writing this book. And I started writing the chapter about millennials, and I couldn't stop writing. There was just so much interesting, rich data there uh, in the interviews. And so I just didn't write the book I planned to write and wrote the book that was in my heart. And that was this one. That's such a great story. I love to
0: hear that. Um, It's always nice when the writing process sort of takes off in a direction that you didn't really intend it to, and it's positive. Um, that's what happened here yeah so going back um, what uh, methods did you use you said you used qualitative methods but how did you recruit participants what who were the participants in this book and why did you choose these methodologies
1: okay so I chose the methodology because I was interested in what People thought. I was interested in the meanings they gave to their own lives and their understandings of the cultural context in which they lived. And so for that kind, I actually used multi-methods. I write papers with quantitative methods as well. But for this project, I wanted to understand how young adults understood their own lives and understood the world they lived in. And so when you're interested in deep understanding of meanings, there's really nothing that beats sitting down with someone and having a very in-depth conversation. So that's why I chose the qualitative uh, interview method that I used in this book. Uh, As I told you, I also had a pragmatic reason, and that is I um, agreed to teach a qualitative uh, methods practicum to doctoral students in the university, of Illinois at Chicago Sociology Department. So um, that's why I told them, chose the method. Uh, the respondents, what I chose because I was interested in the th- changes that the feminist movement had made in our society, and I wanted to see how those changes were understood by young people coming of age today. And so I chose people who were uh, just, you know, the first generation of people in the 21st century. Uh, And so they were millennials. And at the time I talked to them, they were between 18 and 30. Uh, Most of them were between 18 and 25.
0: Great, great. Um, And then going back to the content of the book, there's a lot to talk about here. So first, what are the benefits of the model of gender as a social structure over other theories of gender and gender inequality, such as the the theories that you gave, um, you mentioned earlier about identity. So what, what are the benefits of talking about this as a social structure?
1: The benefit really is that the theory isn't one that says other theories are incorrect. I'm not about, it's not like a, 20th century empirical scientific war where I'm saying my theory is right and your theory is wrong. The theory of gender structure is more an intellectual framework that incorporates all the different theories of gender because I actually think that it's a waste of time and energy to say the social gender inequality exists because of the way we raise people and therefore socialization creates men and women who want different things and they leads to inequality versus, no, it's discrimination. Um, Employers, you know, have biased ideas about women, and that's why they don't hire them, or they have gender stereotypes about non-binary people, and so they won't consider them. Uh, What gender structure theory is really is says, no, actually, it's both and. That is, gender uh, inequality is a combination of a very uh, wide range of factors. And when you're asking any empirical question about why do we get inequality at this time in this way, you can look for one or two particular answers. But when you're trying to understand writ large, why do we have gender inequality in our society? It makes no sense to say it's either about individuals or it's about expectations or it's about our cultural beliefs or the structure of our institution. What gender structure theory argues is it's all of those things and all of those things working in combination. And so that it's really an attempt to, me- to integrate all the different kinds of variables or explanations that exist. I am not the first person who has... Um, argued that gender is multidisciplinary i stand on the shoulder of giants i think the first person was probably ray win connell in the 1980s and then probably um, judith lorber in the 1990s each one had a way of thinking about gender in interdisciplinary and multi level ways and i you, i really build on their work by trying to be um, just a little more systematic in a way that we can, in a theory design that people can use it for uh, all different kinds of research projects.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I know in my experience, when people hear the words gender structure or gender as a social structure, they tend to think Uh, in the very macro sense, an institutional sense. Can you talk a little bit about how gender as a social structure
1: affects the individual and and interactional levels? Absolutely. And when I do understand people hear structure and somehow think macro, Uh, but I actually think there's a long history in a variety of fields to use the language of structure more broadly than that. I, I want when people think of gender structure, I want them to think that every society has a economic structure that has lots of implications for individuals and for interaction and for the, and for organizations and every society has a political structure. And so too, every society has a gender structure, but that gender structure has important impact on how we raise boys and girls. Right. Even today, you go into a toy store and there's an aisle of blue toys and an aisle of pink toys. And even if they've taken the word boys aisle and girls aisle down, it doesn't matter because the symbolism of the colors is so strong in contemporary American society. And so uh, people do gender reveal parties. Do you know what those are? Those are parties where uh, people get together with a Pregnant couple, uh, and you know, have cut open a cake and pink or blue inside, and aha, they know what kind of child they're going to have, and they know whether to buy footballs or baby dolls. Well, imagine what that does to the baby that's born. This poor child is shoved into a box before. They can even say mama or papa or mama and mama. They, you know, they're 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 raised to behave and think about themselves in totally different ways. And that, and I think that research, including my own former research, shows that kind of socialization is very sticky. It doesn't, it simply doesn't disappear. People continue to think of themselves as very masculine or very feminine, often by, by shaped by those childhood explain those childhood experiences. Not everyone, of course, some people reject and totally reject and even change uh, gender identities. But for most people, that's very sticky. Okay, so the fact that we raise people in a gendered any society shapes who they become as individuals, what they're willing, how nice they're expected to be to people, how, uh, and so that changes that, who those babies become. That's how it affects individuals. Um, It also, of course, affects individuals in how they're supposed to look, right? Even when we allow uh, girls to play football and go into science, we still punish them in some ways, even if subtly, if they don't use their bodies in feminine ways, if they don't keep their legs closed when they sit in a chair, if they don't uh, behave in some ways in a subordinate fashion towards men, uh, particularly if they're heterosexual. Right? The, all the research shows that even today, when it comes to heterosexual relationships, men are in control, that men continue to be almost uniquely responsible for doing marriage proposals. That is, who gets to decide if a couple is going to take that next step? That's not an equal decision. It's in fact a decision uh, made by men. So so we. this is really powerful stuff, um, both how we Carry ourselves, use our bodies, and how we think about ourselves. But that's not the only thing that's going on, right? That happens. But at the expectational level, everyone expects men and women to behave differently. That is, if a woman's child, children go off to school looking like a mess, they're dirty, their clothes don't match, people are going to say, What a bad mother! But if she's in a heterosexual marriage, very few people are going to say, what a bad father. In fact, what we expect from fathers predominantly is that they bring in an income. Now, if a father refuses to take a job, he's by definition. People are going to say, what a bad father. But if a mother says, I'm spending time with my children, their most important thing in my life, I'm not working in the labor force, people say, what a good mother. That's her choice. We have different expectations that shape the reality of what we allow for men and women. Now, this really hurts men who decide to be stay-at-home fathers. They are derided. People think they're not masculine. Um, it also hurts women in the labor force who are very directive and and uh, authoritarian as bosses, when a man says you do that and you do it now, he's a good leader. When a woman says that because we expect women to be nice, he's a bitch. And so those expectations, even if we want to break out of gender norms, and many of us do try, we are policed back into them or we face negative repercussions when we break out of them. And in some ways, I think in today's world, This may be even more tough for men than for women, because we continue to hold very hegemonic notions about what masculinity is going to be. And I think we can see that uh, in who's wearing masks during the pandemic. Right. We see men refusing to because it looks weak. Our president refuses to wear a mask, which is about taking care of other people more than oneself because. It looks in his mind, which is um, shaped around toxic masculinity, weakness, and so so that these expectations really shape our behavior, and then, oh, you and so you get that at the interaction level. At the macro level, it's really important to to realize that there's two things we're thinking about, which is that there are both the way we've built gender presumptions into our schools and our workplaces and every organization you've ever been in. Workplaces presume that a best worker doesn't have any of his or her energy sapped off, as the uh, employer might say, into taking care of other people. Old people, children, sick friends or family. It's all about the work 24-7. And who can do that best? People who have no responsibilities for anyone else—who's that? Well, in our world, it's much more likely to be men. But we've also built gender into um, public schools. Any school that lets a child off at three o'clock in the afternoon is built on the presumption that that child has a parent at home, not in the workplace. Now, most children don't. But have our but have our schools changed? Absolutely not. They still, we push women out of the labor force by doing that. Why women instead of men? Well, in two-thirds of the households, women still earn less money. So that when somebody um, gets pushed out, there's often an economic reason for being a woman. But that's not the only reason. We not only have organizations that are built by gender inequality, deeply embedded gender inequality. But we also um, have cultural logics or belief systems that underlie this notion that a good woman is a caretaker and a mother first and foremost. And so that even in households where mothers are very high earners, if somebody gets pushed out of the household, it's often the mother because we think that men who aren't in the labor force are somehow less masculine but nobody's going to impugn the femininity of even a high paying successful woman out of who's pushed out of the labor force my deepest fear right now as i'm talking to you in may of 2020 is that this pandemic is going to set gender equality back to generations because as camps close and schools close uh, and People don't have any childcare, whose freedoms and inequalities and work is going to suffer? It's going to be the mothers. Mm-hmm. And so it, I'm terribly worried that uh, gender equality, as we know it, and it's far from uh, a full equality, is going to decrease tremendously in the coming decades. Yeah, it's
0: really interesting talking to you now, given the pandemic. And I've definitely noticed in going to like the grocery store the difference in um, who is wearing masks. That's an excellent point, and I certainly see that in my own experiences. Um, So, I do want to talk about the four different types of uh, people or like ideas about gender that you talk about in your book because I found those especially interesting. The categories you found. So, who are the who are the true believers? So describe the true believers and what do they believe about gender?
1: The true believers are, I use that phrase to refer to a belief in a system of gender inequality that is based on, uh, that is justified. That true believers truly believe that men and women are different. They're essentially, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Uh, Men are naturally leaders and uh, the more aggressive sex, that they should be in charge of the world, in charge of the family, and that women should be um, mothers and should be subordinate to men. They truly believe that men and women's roles are different, and they see no reason. that's a problem. It is not unjustified. They think that's how things should be, that boys and girls should be raised differently and should have different roles in society. What I thought was interesting and was really what um, sociologists call an inductive finding. I hadn't, um, this was not part of what I had expected to find, but it was definitely in my data that almost all of the true believers were raised in households that that were practiced literalist faith traditions. These were not all raised in any given kind of religious tradition. They came from uh, everything from evangelical Christians to Muslim. I had one Orthodox Jew, um, Greek Orthodox. They were people who all different religions, but they were the version. Every religion has congregations that go from literalists to more metaphorical um, reads of their their sacred texts. And every one of the true believers was raised in a literalist faith tradition, a believer in a text uh, that and in a literal way, men and women were different and that men... Uh, should be heads of households uh, now what's interesting they did not all explain why they were true believers using religious ideology. The women were much more likely to do so. The men were more likely to uh, draw on biological explanations of sex differences um, but they were they were people who acknowledged how different men and women's lives continue to be in the 21st century and thought that was how they were supposed to be. What mm-hmm. one other thing I want to say that was interesting about the true believers is that even among the true believers no one argued that women's place was in the home. That is even among the true believers women expected to be working for pay for their majority of their lives that was taken for granted. Now most of them said they wanted to be in caretaking professions, the kinds of things that women traditionally do, teachers, nurses. Some of them wanted to be doctors. So there was really no... uh, So I think it's really interesting that uh, the feminist movement has been very successful in the breaking down of the notion that the heterosexual family is a breadwinning man and a homemaking wife. Even the true believers... We're not espousing that ideology about family.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, were there differences in gender? Um, like, were more men, more women, tend to be true believers?
1: Uh, no, there, we had both men and women true believers. And the actual numbers in a category in a study like this sure. don't really matter because the study's not representative. It's okay. who happened to you know volunteer. But I did have both men and women. True believers. I was surprised that that actually that there are that many that women continue to espouse these. um, I don't know why these um, beliefs about society. Um, But there was that one difference that when it came to explaining why women should um, accept different roles and lesser freedoms, the women tended to say, "Because my God says so," and the men tended to say because biologically, um, this is how the species evolved. Mm,
0: Oh, that is an interesting point. Uh, And then the second group you talk about are called the innovators. So describe the innovators, and how are the innovators different from true believers?
1: Innovators and true believers are as different as night and day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The innovators are um, people who think, who wouldn't acknowledge that gender inequality exists, and think it shouldn't exist. They um, believe that there should we should raise boys and girls to have equal rights and responsibilities. That we shouldn't expect different things from men and women, and that we should change the rules and the beliefs at the macro level of our societies uh, that differentiate between by gender and um and male privilege. Uh, the innovators are very much, I think, uh like a second wave feminist. That is, they have simply adopted and and espoused a kind of feminist ideology around gender, um around gender differences, that they're socially constructed and that we should deconstruct them, do away with them so that both men and women have the same rights and responsibilities. And uh, what's interesting, and I think shows how old the data is, and I think that's an important point to mention. I collected these data in 2012, in 2013. That The book, Yes, is published in 2018. I finished writing it in the beginning of 2018. By the beginning of two thousand and seventeen, um, why that? Why the long delay there? That's another question, and I hope you'll ask it later on. I'm going to leave it for right now. Uh, but when I collected these data, um, we were going towards the end. You know, in, we were already in the second term of a uh, Obama presidency. These young People had been raised in an era where they believed that we were on a sort of upward trajectory around gender and racial equality. They were not politically engaged. They felt like those big pushes for, um, particularly gender equality, were over. They could they could do their innovation and their feminism simply by living the lives they wanted to live and and pave the way forward. Um, as individuals, because all the hard work was done in, in by the social movements that came before them. I think that this data, in that sense, is out of date, because post the election of President Trump, we have had a series of social movements led by millennials. The Me Too movement really is a kind of mo- the uh, women who are coming forth were often sometimes older but often millennials the black lives matter movement is definitely led by millennials um and so the title nine kind of movements on campus and so i think that there's a repoliticization of this generation that has happened as the politics of the united states have become more right-wing this generation uh, I actually just looked at some brand new data. This generation is more anti-Trump than any other generation. Um, actually, generation, every generation younger is more anti-Trump than older. Uh, but generation, this one is repoliticized. But when, in my book, in, the innovators were not very political. They were all about changing the world with the way they lived their lives, Um and another thing that was I thought very interesting that I learned from my interviews with the innovators was that feminism wasn't just for women anymore. There were in my example there were men who were men much more feminist than women in other categories. And so that feminism was seen by many of the men in, in the innovator category as as important for them as it would be for women. And so I think that was a really interesting finding.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I'm really interested in how you explain the difference between the innovators and the rebels because I could see some overlap in between the two groups, but there were some differences. So, as a group, who were the rebe- Who were the rebels, and how are the rebels unique? Okay, so the rebels
1: um, were. You can think about the rebels as they were just like the innovators with one twist, and the twist was the. Innovators didn't reject the embodiment aspect of gender. That is, the innovators, the innovators did not uh, reject the notion that women and not men should wear dresses and earrings and do their hair with, you know, go to the salon, Uh, and the men uh, should wear pants and and use their bodies in ways we traditionally. Think of as masculine. The innovators were critical of all parts of the gender structure, but not how they used their bodies. What I call materialist, the embodiment aspect of gender—they did not critique. They were not. Uh, they didn't rebel against um, looking feminine or masculine. That didn't come up in their conversation. The rebels were just like the innovators. They were against gender inequality and at you know, they don't think you should raise kids differently. They don't think um, we should have different expectations. They are definitely against all the way in which gender is built into the organizations and cultural beliefs. But they also rebel against having to use their bodies to show or do their gender. And that, I think, is really a, you that they're that kind of front runners of this rebellion. There were very few of them in my sample, uh, maybe 12 or 13, and some of them were more rejection than others. Again, you have to remember the sample was collected in 212 and 13. There wasn't a person I talked to among the rebels who used non-gendered pronouns in public. A few of them were playing around with them and trying them out with friends or in support groups, but nobody used them publicly. And so in this book, I use no theys because I stayed true to what people were, how people were describing themselves when I talked to them. I know that some of the rebels in this book by now use they. Um, And so these were people who nowadays we would call non-binary a gender, gender queer. I use some of those terms in here. Not all the people in the rebel group were yet using those terms in my book because the data was collected uh, before those terms were widely dispersed. Um, but they were people who rejected all of the gender structure, including the notion that we should do gender with our bodies, and so um, they. You know, I had, they were mostly people who had been raised as girls, but I did have uh, one man, one person who'd been raised as a boy who wore a dress and sometimes wore nail polish and just felt strongly that he actually identified as male, but that there was no reason just because he was male, he couldn't uh, love bright colors and uh, wear whatever he, whatever kind of clothes he wanted. Uh, similarly, uh, there were people raised as girls who identified as women at this time, they may not now, uh, who had uh, their breasts removed because they just hated having breasts and wanted to present in a more androgynous way. And so it really are people who were rejecting using their body to do gender. And that's what makes the rebels different than the innovators.
0: Yeah, that's interesting to talk about um, the medical aspect because I was interested in. Oh, did they undergo anything like medical transition? And it sounds like they did with the those who identified as women at the time did get their breasts removed. So that's that's an interesting distinction. That was
1: actually only one. I okay. only had one person who actually uh, did any kind of body modification. Oh, okay. um, I think uh, others did different ways of. Uh, You use clothing more than body modification. You know, uh, people who had been raised as girls only dropped, shopped in the men's department, for example, and kind of, and talked about a more common way of doing this, at least among this sample, was feeling as if they were trying to present androgynously. And so to do that, they had female body parts, but wore male clothing.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and then the final group you talk about are the straddlers. So who are the straddlers? How are they unique? Um, just tell us a bit about
1: them. The straddlers actually were the biggest group in the sample. So the, when I say straddlers here, what I mean in this book by that term, I almost is that they are, they were sounded sometimes like true believers, sometimes like iterators and even occasionally like rebels. that is they mixed up their answers so much that they sounded chaotic. You would read through an interview and or if you were interviewer do it and couldn't believe the same person had just said this and then said that. That is they had they were very much uncertain about what the gender structure, Expected from them and how to respond to it. So, their answers were very, very, um, in some senses, incoherent. They sounded very traditional uh, at one moment, like a true believer men and women are really different. And then they'd say, you know, a woman who really believe men and women are really different and women should really um, take, uh, let men take the lead. And then in another part of the interview would say, I'm gonna marry a man who really make who really um does what I tell him to do. Right? Uh, okay, what does what does that mean? Um, or someone who really believes in gender equality, um, but would never ask a man out on a date, uh, because that's not feminine, right? And so someone who espouses egalitarian rules but acts in traditional ways, perhaps because she or he is worried about being policed and and other people reacting to them badly. Uh, so is af- so afraid, so believes things should be one way, but is afraid of the negative repercussions of breaking gender norms. And so behaves in ways that are in- inconsistent with what they think the world should be. So they were, their answers were all over the place. But I will say one thing about the straddlers, and actually it's something that is true across the board for all of them, all of the categories, is I found something, um, a kind of neoliberal live and let live attitude about gender, which is people were very clear and said often unasked, this is what I believe, but I think everybody should live the way they want to. So there was a kind of live and let live, not, Wanting to impose one's own gendered rules on other people—that I thought was a really interesting um, theme that came through from this entire generation, or at least the people I talked to for this book.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense that it, uh, it makes sense to me based on my experiences that this was the largest group. I, I certainly hear a lot of this, um, among folks. And I understand that gender norms and policing can be really strong. Um, so it makes sense to me that there could be some difficulties in actually putting these, these thoughts and beliefs into action. Um, so in shifting a little bit towards looking at your work in the larger literature, The millennial group does relate to the emerging adulthood literature, and you talk about this in your book. So why is the analysis of gender important when studying emerging adulthood, and why is it important to study millennials?
1: Okay, so this is a great question. Um, For those of you, in case, you know, emerging adulthood is something that is a kind of catchphrase that sociologists and psychologists use, but not everyone knows what it means. So let me sort of step back and just say what Mm -hmm. that means. That is... In the last 20 years, we have really shifted tremendously at the age at which people in America move through the stages of um, uh, adolescence into being adult roles, uh, how long that has taken. Demographers used to measure adulthood by finishing school, marrying uh, taking a first job in a long-planned, a you know, a, a career line job, a job in a that one expected to stay in that field, and having a child, and that used to happen by the early twenties. Now, that obviously has changed, and so the millennials, in some ways, are really the first generation who have come of age in a moment where instead of moving into adulthood by the early 20s, we now see that most people don't move into an adulthood as measured by those kinds of things um, into, until late 20s and even early 30s. And so what we have done in the psychologists tell us is we've added a stage to human development from We used to have, we presume that when people went from late adolescence into adulthood, now people go from late adolescence into emerging adulthood and don't come out into the sort of in their adult roles that they're going to stay in until they retire, until their late 20s, early 30s. So they have a lot of time to figure out who they want to be and how they want to live their lives. Now, why do they have a lot of time? is another question. And of course, it has to do with the rising cost of housing, the lack of stable jobs, the rise of the gig economy and precarious uh, lives, the later age of marriage, there's lots of reasons. But it is the case that uh, we have this almost decade of period of feeling out who I want to be and how I want to live my life that millennials are really pathbreakers on. And why they're an important, an interesting generation, and I think what's really interesting for me as a gender scholar is that one of those things that people now spend time experimenting with and thinking about and about identities is around gender and sexual identities, and so uh, that is my literature. Um, I'm excuse me, my contribution to the literature is to push that notion. Of the emerging adulthood is not only about other kinds of identities, uh, occupational, and uh, but about gender identities, gender meanings, and sexuality, and and working through how one wants to live one's life, and so um, that's what, in some ways, this book is also about.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, given your your long work in the gender literature and as a gender scholar, I'm really interested in your take on the next question, and that is, how do you how do you think we should continue to move forward with with feminist change? I know the the pandemic can throw a, a wrench into things, but what is your your thought? What are your thoughts on how to move forward with feminist change?
1: Okay, so well, um, that's exactly what my last chapter in this book about, and I must say. It's- my favorite chapter of this book it's Getting to Utopia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Getting to a Utopian World Beyond Gender is the title of the chapter, and the important worlds there are beyond gender. I I think that gender as a social structure is a structure that enforces inequality upon us. Difference we do not, one thing I think we should have learned from Judith Lorber's work uh, in the 19, uh, the paradox of gender is that we very rarely enforce difference unless we are try, needing difference to justify inequality. And I believe the reason we have a gender structure is to justify the inequality around gender categories. And so I think that the fourth wave of gender, of feminism, what I would like to propose and do propose in this book is that we join together uh, people of all genders and try to remove the gender structure from its existence. Now, do I think we should have a revolution? No, because people are deeply invested in the gender structure beliefs. but I think we should chip away at the gender structure in every way that we can, I think that when people reject the bodily presentation of gender and choose to be genderqueer or agender, they are in some ways making us question why we need these binary categories of woman and man to organize our lives around. Why? Why should we impose that dichotomy on people? Why should something be, um, why should when I um, plant flowers or clean my house, should I be doing gender and femininity? Why shouldn't those just be human joy and work? Why should when I go out and play a game of touch football, which I don't, but... um, (laughs) my child was a, a rugby player, why should they be, that be considered masculine rather than athletic and competitive? And so this, what I'm suggesting is we deconstruct the ideas that are deeply embedded as for woman or for man, feminine or masculine, from those terms, and let us all just be human. And so I believe the fourth wave of feminism should be about um, blowing up the categories of gender and dismantling the gender structure.
0: Mm -hmm. And we've talked about a lot of different things that you found. What surprised you the most about your findings?
1: That's a great question. What surprised me the most? Um, I think... The feminist men in the innovators I was I was surprised how many how more feminist some of the men um, were than many of the women I think that was a pleasant surprise um, I think the importance of literalist faith traditions in the uh, support of gender inequality was also somewhat a surprise to me. I'm, you know, I'm uh, myself a uh, person of faith. I'm a member of a Jewish congregation. And the version of religiosity that I am part of has been totally transformed by feminism. You know, God is no longer a man. The people are no longer, you know, the men uh, leadership is at least half female. And so it, I can't think it surprised me because it was out of my experience at how much religion is still shoring up ideologies of inequality for some people.
0: Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to the question that you, um, you wanted me to ask you. So what took you so long to write the book? I'm sorry, ask that one more time? Sure. So before you mentioned um, that it took a while to write the book, and I should ask you Uh, about
1: why. Why, What took you so long? Well, first of all, I think the publishing process takes a long time, and I don't know that everyone always understands that. Uh, But on the top of it, my life. You know, writers also have lives Mm -hmm. that are not about writing. So while I was collecting this data, I I was a university administrator. I was the head of my department. And so there was simply no time to sit down and have the uninterrupted thinking time that I needed to process this book. And so I um, had a sabbatical in the year of 2015 and 2016. I was so lucky to have been selected to be a fellow at the Center for Advanced Studies of Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. And I went there with the... express purpose of finishing this book, and that's what I did that year. But without that year, you know, I'm of time that was dedicated to writing. I might never have written this book. I might have written a series of articles, which I find much easier to do while I'm juggling teaching and and running a department. Uh, and so uh, the, the lag... Between the data collection and the publication, which was, um, you know, five years, is not really, or even six years I started, is not, you know, I just want to say, I don't think my experience is terribly atypical. I see that my, in my experience as watching books being produced, uh, it's a pretty typical pattern. And so that I think that's important. It's just kind of important for people who don't write books to know that there's often a lag from the time the data is collected to the time that it's finished. And it's about um, the reality that the often academics who are writing these books are juggling writing with very many other uh, responsibilities. Yeah, I do really
0: appreciate that transparency because I agree. It's not really talked about much um how long the publishing process takes and some people will say, "Oh, well this isn't valid anymore." um or this data they're just they're just too old, but I yeah, I agree that um people should understand that it just takes a long time and things get in the way. um and professors are juggling teaching and administrative um task as you mentioned. um my final question for you is, what are you working on next? What, do you, what is your next big project or your current big project?
1: Okay, well, I have an exciting new project. I um, just learned a few weeks ago that I uh, received the National Science Foundation grant. I had applied to do a big study on the rebels. I don't call them the rebels anymore <laughs> because the time has, time has changed and now l- language changes uh, very quickly actually, in this moment in history. Uh, but it's a new study on non-binary and gender queer um, young adults. It's a direct result from how interesting I thought the rebels were in this book. And this time I'll be doing a three-city study, uh, a Midwest, a uh, Pacific Northwest, and a Deep South uh, city. And I'll be doing, uh, and my team, I have a co uh, investigator whose name is Buddy Scarborough from the University of North Texas, uh, and our team will be interviewing uh, sixty people who identify themselves as non-binary in those three cities. And so uh, we are we were scheduled to go in the beginning of August, but um, we are on hold for the pandemic. Of course, we these are face-to-face interviews. We have to wait until. It is, once again, safe to do interviews. We are, the National Science Foundation has given us till November 1st to begin. And we certainly hope we will be able to begin face-to-face by November. But it's very exciting. I think that trying to understand not only what the the gender structure is, how non-binary people understand the gender structure. That's what the interviews are about. Uh, But we also are doing a separate study, not funded by the NSF. We're still looking for funding for the second study. The companion study is we want to do a quantitative study uh, that measures the gender structure among today's college students to see how the emergence of people who reject the binary has changed the view of gender among today's young adults. And so that's my new project, and I'm very excited to begin as soon as the pandemic ends.
0: Right, yeah. I'm also very excited for this project. Um, First of all, congrats on the National Science Foundation grant. That's great. Um, And I'm originally from South Carolina, so I'll be very interested in seeing your findings about non-binary folks in the Deep South. I just think it's really fascinating coming from that environment where a lot of people that I know um, were would fall into the category of the true believers. So um, yeah, I'm really excited to see your findings for that.
1: So as you know, it will be a while. Yes, of course. (laughs) But
0: um, I I am happy to wait just because it's so interesting.
1: Uh, It won't won't be that long though, because I have co-authors and I also have a grant and I'm no longer an administrator. So it'll be faster. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. So where can listeners find more about you online to learn more about your work and your book? I have a website.
1: Very easy. It's com, And you can see my new work. You can see um, whatever I'm quoted in the press. Uh, you can also see a little bit about, I um, have a uh something called Risman's Writing Retreats, where I do online uh, writing uh, groups and I have summer retreats and such. So you can find out all about what I'm doing at www.barbararisman.com. Fantastic. Well, this has been an interview
0: with Dr. Barbara Risman, author of Where the Millennials Will Take Us, A New Generation Wrestles with the Gender Structure. Dr. Risman, I want to thank you again for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed chatting with you.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It was an honor, and I really enjoyed having a conversation with you as well. Thanks.
0: Take care. Bye-bye.